Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In Luke's gospel, we have the treasured story of the birth of Jesus. God visits his people. And that visitation is unlike any previous visitation. God has shown up in times past and spoken in times past. But he comes this time in the person of Jesus. The second chapter contains the advent of Jesus in verses 1 through 7. And then the announcement by the angels in verses 8 through 20. And then the adoration of the newborn king in verses 21 through 40. And the birth of Jesus and the place of Jesus' birth is orchestrated. It is planned. It is no accident. The death of Jesus, though tragic, is also planned. And the resurrection of Jesus is planned. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is carefully prophesied and carefully planned throughout the Old Testament. The early apostles and disciples appealed to two important truths to establish the messianic identity and mission and destiny of Jesus. And those two things were, number one, fulfilled prophecy. And number two, the resurrection of Jesus. The reason why they appealed to these two supernatural courses of thinking was so that the person sitting and hearing for the first time would take careful consideration about the story of Jesus. And so it begins with the decree by Caesar. Look at verse 1. It says, and it came to pass in those days. For many people who believe that Jesus is a myth or that the story of Jesus is a myth, the testimony doesn't begin with once upon a time. It begins with, it came to pass in those days. Because the reality of Jesus is rooted in history. It says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the word, if you look in verse 1, that word decree translates a much maligned Greek word, dogma. For those who hate the word dogma, it was a word that was first used to describe imperial decrees. It was a word that described an authority, making an authoritative statement, and it would later come to describe ecclesiastical pronouncements. Caesar Augustus was born Caius, or Gaius, Octavius, Thurinius, in Rome in 63 B.C., He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar who adopted him as his heir before the death of Julius, which took place in what was called the Ides of March in 44 BC. 
In 43 BC, Octavius formed what would be called the Triumvirate with a person named Cassius and a person named Mark Anthony. And they would set forth the design of what would be the Roman Empire. In 27 BC, Octavius was given the title of the Most August or the August One or Augustus. And the month of August, of course, is named after him. And when people, when Caesar spoke, people listened. You may have grown up in a world where there was a commercial that would, there was this famous commercial that says, when, what's the name of the? Yeah, E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. When Caesar opened his mouth, The world would change. Armies would march. In order to accomplish the task, when Caesar spoke, the whole world would respond. Caesar had absolute authority. And in order to accomplish the task of a census, he ordered each and every person to return to his ancestral home. When he spoke, armies marched. Nations trembled, and there was a man and a woman who lived in a little tiny village on the outskirts of the Galilee in the hill country. And in this mountainous region of Nazareth, they had to make the trek to Bethlehem, which was some 80 miles south. And the small village of of Bethlehem would have grown and swollen thick when distant relatives jammed and crammed into close quarters. And the town wouldn't have looked like a serene, idyllic area. It would have looked more like a refugee camp than a peaceful Christmas postcard. In Bethlehem, it would have had limited food and limited shelter. Caesar ordered, look what it says in verse 1, a registration. It appears in verse 1. It appears in verse 3. It appears in verse 5. It's the word apographo. The word also appears in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 23, when it speaks of... Those who are on a roll, those whose names who are, are enrolled in heaven. You've probably sang a song, when the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. This is the role that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews. But here in Luke, in the middle voice, it means to register oneself. It was an official registration for tax purposes. The decree was to, it says, all the world. But it doesn't mean all the world from China to South America. It uses a specific word which describes the inhabited world or the known world. And in this particular instance, Luke is making reference to the Roman world. And so it says in verse 2 that this census first took place while... Quirinius was governing Syria, and Quirinius was a Roman uh, governor who was made the governor over this province called Syria, which would have incorporated not only modern Judea and modern Lebanon and modern Syria and modern Turkey. It would have occupied all of that space. And the Romans took a census. Every 14 years, in order to provide for the military and in order to make an equipping, every male had to return to their ancestral home to record names, to record occupations, to record property, to record family. It says in verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And the point that Luke is making in these first three verses is that Mary and Joseph will be drawn to Bethlehem. 
Caesar believes that he's the ruler of the Roman world, and he is. But Caesar's decree draws a couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the point that Luke is making is that behind the powers that be, behind the world authorities, behind the people who make pronouncements, there's a supernatural God leading, guiding, designing. Mary has already agreed that she'll be used by God to fulfill his will. In chapter 1, verse 38, if you just turn the page very briefly to chapter 1, you'll remember it says, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She's already agreed that she's going to be used by God in order to fulfill God's plan and fulfill God's purposes. And so it says in verse 4 that Joseph also went up from the Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Joseph was a direct descendant of David, and so was Mary. Bethlehem means House of bread. And it's a fitting name for the town of Jesus because he is, of course, the bread of life. He's described in the Bible as the bread that came down from heaven. And Bethlehem was the place where Rachel died, giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. Last week when Malcolm uh, Wilde was here with his wife, Carol, Um, they wanted to see some sights. Now, if you bring family and friends into Denver, Colorado, what is Denver famous for? I know what you're thinking. Coors. Yes, of course it is. By the way, Coors is the number one visited attraction. Did you know that in the front range? It's the brewery. We're famous for Red Rocks. The front range is famous for all kinds of different things. But Malcolm and Carol wanted to see the Columbine Memorial. Because there's different things that different cities are famous for. There's different things that define a community. There are different things that happen that will create something inside of a person's heart where they go to this particular place and they wonder about that place. And Bethlehem was the place where Rachel died. Rachel was the beloved wife, you'll remember, of Jacob. She gave birth to Joseph, but she also died in Bethlehem giving birth To Benjamin in Genesis chapter 35, this is the place where another romance took place. For those of you who are familiar with this place, this is the place where Ruth, a Moabitess, whose husband had died, met and married her husband. This is the place where David would be born. And this is the place where he would grow up as a young man. And this is the place where David would tend fields and shepherd sheep. This is the place where he would kill a lion with his bare hands and also a bear. And David's name means beloved. And so he was known as The beloved king. And Jesus, of course, would be called the son of David. Jesus would have two favorite titles for himself. One would be the son of man as he identifies with human beings as human. And the second would be as the son of David. And in verse 5 it says, To be registered with Mary his betrothed wife who was with child. And some people stumble on that because they say, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, does that mean they're not really married? 
Well, in a very real sense, they really are married because betrothal in the Jewish culture and in the Israeli culture was way more than just a promise of engagement. It was a legal and binding contract. But the reason why Luke uses this particular expression because he wants to draw to the reader's attention the fact that Joseph and Mary have had no sexual contact whatsoever. And that's why he still uses the term betrothal, and yet she's pregnant. The expression with child translates the adjective inkios. It's a Greek word that appears only here in the entire New Testament, the Greek New Testament. It's the verb kio, which means to conceive, and so be pregnant. And so here, it means to expect a child. And it, was, it came to mean swollen or expecting a child. And you can imagine that after 80 miles of traveling, how difficult the journey would have been for Joseph and Mary because she is pregnant. And I know that you see the idyllic pictures of Mary riding on a donkey From Nazareth to Bethlehem. But we have no evidence whatsoever that she rode on a donkey. And by the way, do you think if you're nine months pregnant riding on a donkey for 80 miles. (laughs) That that's going to be a comfortable way of having a child. Any of you who have ever been pregnant know that that's not an appealing prospect. But also imagine you're walking for 80 miles. And it says in verse 6, so it was that while they were there in the city of David, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Mary would come to full term and she would deliver her child in Bethlehem. And I'm going to suggest to you that as Joseph and Mary prepared for their journey and as they're making their way to Bethlehem, remember this is the city of their origin. So they have family, they have friends, but the town has swollen and they don't have exactly a place to stay. By the way, do you think that they argued about the advantages of a home birth versus a hospital birth? Yeah, your laughter betrays the reality that that's probably not in the cards. Do you think that Joseph brought his iPad and logged onto parents.com and clicked on the article 25 things to do in Bethlehem before you deliver? Probably not. But I went to parents.com and I clicked on 25 things to do before you deliver. Ooh, look what it says. Mmm. Start with a yummy breakfast. Start with a breakfast in bed. Before moving to Netflix Marathon, break out those celebrity magazines and then play Scrabble with your honey. Do you think that that's what Mary and Joseph are doing? In the song, Mary Did You Know, songwriter Mark Lowry writes, Mary... Did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Read the text again in verse 6. So it was that while they were there. The days were completed for her to be delivered. The reality is it's not lost on the careful Bible student or the Christian. That the delivery by Mary of this child is going to result in our delivery. The Christian experience deliverance from the curse of a broken law in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 and the, the, Paul writes that Jesus will come at exactly the right moment at exactly the right time in order 
to be a provision. The Christian experiences deliverance from the condemnation of sin. And that's what we've been reading about in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no pronouncement of guilt. There's no judicial pronouncement of guilt. The Christian experiences deliverance from the taskmaster or the servitude of sin. In Romans chapter 6 verse 18. They, you deliver, you're, there's a deliverance from evil in this world in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Deliverance from the power of darkness in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Deliverance from the fear of death in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15. And by the way, it's a huge fear. It's a huge fear that many people experience. Some mothers as they're giving birth to their child, instead of joy and grace and mercy, for some there is that sinking, dreadful feeling that something horrible could happen to their child. But it's a deliverance also from self and in the death of Jesus, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, there are multiple experiences that are taking place because Jesus is going to come and he's going to break the power of darkness and the dread of sin and the fear of death. And most of our study now is going to be camped on verse 7, the domicile of Jesus. Look what it says. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The birth of Jesus is covered in this single verse. Most scholars believe the manger was a portable feeding trough. A portable feeding trough because remember elsewhere it says that the shepherds are in the fields and they're tending their flocks. Some scholars suggest that this manger is hewn stone inside of one of Bethlehem's limestone caves. You see the truth is um, it probably wasn't an elegant Barn filled with hay and filled with animals. It was probably one of Bethlehem's limestone caves. And Jesus was probably born in a cave that would have been used to shelter animals. Luke describes Mary wrapping the baby in swaddling clothes. These are thin strips of cloth that would have been used to bind babies to keep their arms and their legs straight, but it would also serve the added function of providing security and protection. And as shocking as that might sound, it should come as no surprise to you that babies have been born in unbelievable circumstances. Years ago, when I first planted this church, local news outlets reported a baby that was found on a Colorado road. It was at a time that we had experienced one of the worst blizzards in our history, and the baby was wrapped in a shower curtain on the side of a road at an Aurora trailer park. As the news unfolded, it was discovered that a deranged woman had stabbed the baby's mother and had removed the unborn child from her womb. And it was a miracle that the baby had survived. And the baby did survive. And the baby was placed in foster placement. In a separate shocking story that was covered by Examiner.com just this year, the headline read, quote, Frozen baby mom sentenced, newborn left on the side of the road to die in the cold. The story was dated April 6, 2013. It began, quote, A mother whose newborn baby was found frozen by the side of a country road has been sentenced to 50 years in jail. The mother's name was given as Kelly Stockton. The article continued, quote, Police searched Stockton's car and found two other dead skeletal remains of babies, which were wrapped in clothing. According to the Boston Herald, 
The woman hid her pregnancies from her family and friends. And she gave birth alone. She pled guilty to one count of murder. She apologized in court to those, quote unquote, that I have hurt. And she asked for forgiveness, unquote. Jesus is born in desperate poverty and unthinkable humility. The Greek word translated in is very interesting. It's, it's the Greek word katalima. It, it isn't like the courtyard Marriott. It isn't like um, a hotel. It isn't, it isn't like any of those things. It was the same word that is used to describe the guest room or a guest chamber. It's that word that's used to describe when, the, when Jesus and his disciples will go to the upper room. It was a place that you would rent in order to have a special occasion. And the couple come to their ancestral homeland and there's no room for this couple. And therefore there's no room for the baby. And the text doesn't tell us that there was an innkeeper. It just simply says, look, read it for yourself. Because there was no room. For them in the end. But is it a stretch do you think that somebody was in charge? Do you think it's a stretch that someone had to be the person who said we have no room for you. There's no accommodations. There's no place for you here. The truth is when you ask the question why, why? Why wasn't there any room? Do you think that the innkeeper was just being a jerk? I really strongly doubt it. The place is cramped. It's swollen. It's filled with people. The law of of supply and demand probably means that they're not the people who are going to be able to afford a place. If we ask a different question, well, well, wait a minute, wasn't anybody looking for a pregnant couple? Weren't, there, weren't they looking for a Messiah? And we know that there was a strong messianic movement at that particular time. We also know that there were Bible scholars and there were kings and there were princes and there were people who were looking for a Messiah, I'm going to suggest to you that there were a number of people who were looking for a baby. Or they were looking for a prince. Or they were looking for a king. But the startling answer is that the kings and the scholars and the people weren't looking at the right place. They weren't looking in Bethlehem, even though Bethlehem is the place that's prophesied. And Bethlehem was only five miles away from downtown Jerusalem. If we ask the question, why didn't the innkeeper make room for Jesus, we could very simply ask the same question of ourselves. We might say to ourselves, why don't we make room for Jesus? Why haven't I made room for Jesus? What might be some of the possible reasons? This is going to be one of those interactive Bible studies where you get to help. I know I often say pretend like you are a charismatic congregation. (laughs) Let's just think about it for a moment. What would cause the innkeeper to turn them away? 
Is it because he's a regular businessman taking advantage of the laws of supply and demand? Is it possible the innkeeper never expected Jesus or his mother and his guardian? Is it possible the innkeeper was not one of the thousands of people with messianic expectations? And is it possible that we're living in a world and we're living at a time that people want Christmas but they don't want Christ? They want joy and they want peace and they want hope and they want life, but they don't want Jesus. Was it possible that the innkeeper may have been one of those thousands of people with no messianic expectations whatsoever? This could have been one of the guys, he doesn't read the Jewish Bible. He doesn't know the prophecies that are are in place. He isn't looking for a pregnant couple. Is it possible he's completely unfamiliar with the prophecies? We know that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents, over 40 generations by 40 different authors. Scholars have searched the scriptures and they found some 300 plus prophecies that relate to the first coming of God's Messiah. A guy named Payne lists 191 prophecies in his encyclopedia of Bible prophecy. I happen to have a copy of it on page 665 to 670. He lists all the prophecies and time doesn't permit me to list all of them. But think about it. Number one, he would be born of a virgin according to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And he was according to Matthew 2. Verses 1 through 6. He would be born in Bethlehem, it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And he was in the text that we just read. He would be taken to Egypt in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And he was in Matthew 2, 15. He would heal the sick according to Isaiah 53. And he did according to Matthew 8. He would be crucified, it says in Psalm 22, verses 14 through 17. And he was, it says in Matthew 27, 31. He would die for our sins in Isaiah 53. And he did in John chapter 1, verse 29. He would be raised from the dead, it says in Psalm 16, verse 10. And he was, it says in Matthew 28, verse 1. Why is this even important? Because guess what? There is no other book in all of human history that foretells the future as if it is past. The Quran doesn't have prophetic prophecy. The Upanishads and the Vedas don't have prophetic prophecy. The Quran, the Upanishads, all of the so-called holy books that exist, there's only one book, there's only one book that said God was going to visit his people and he was going to provide the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. The list could go on and on. He would be the seed of Abraham. He would be the tribe of Judah. He would be the family of Jesse and he would be the son of David. Is it possible that this innkeeper had no knowledge of prophecy. No expectation that God would keep his word. That he would provide a Messiah. Is ignorance one of the reasons why so many people say, I want Christmas, but I don't want Jesus? Was it possible that the innkeeper had little hope or no expectation that anything so powerful, so dramatic, so supernatural could all of a sudden show up on his doorstep? We know that we live in a crazy world where crazy things happen. But is it possible that God could show up When you least expect it, show up on your humble doorstep. Maybe he didn't have a sense of hope. Maybe he didn't have a sense of expectancy. And maybe it's true of you. 
You've given up hope and you've given up a sense of expectancy. You suffer from a profound case of what I call hope deficit disorder. Where it's been sucked right out of you. Because you live in a broken world and you live in a place where there are broken dreams. And you have lost the ability to see yourself as a part of God's unfolding plan. Have you given up hope? You see, the Bible is a book about hope. And the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of hope. The hope of salvation. The hope of life. The hope of forgiveness. The hope of glory. Jesus is called a living hope in the Bible. And the reason why he's called a living hope, because you see, hope falls into two categories. Dead And alive, in the dead category, we have another category. We call it wishful thinking. But Jesus rescues. By the way, in the early church, the first disciples and the apostles... Do you realize that after Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead that he told his disciples and apostles that he was going to come back and the early church had this serious sense of expectancy. The expectation was so prevalent and so profound that the Christians in the first century would greet one another with the Aramaic phrase Maranatha. It it was a word that meant the Lord. The Lord is coming. And they would say this to one another in the morning. When they would meet one another, they would say, Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. It it became a phrase almost like in Hawaii. In Hawaii, they, they say aloha. They say aloha for hello, and they say aloha for for goodbye, and they say aloha for just about everything. Sushi, aloha. Food, aloha. Party, aloha. It's the one word that seemed to fit everything. And for the early Christians, Maranatha was that word. It was the way you said hello. It was the way that you said goodbye. But it was also the way when men and women faced persecution and execution. When the flames were roaring, they would shout, Maranatha. When they had to find a secret place to meet. A secret place to worship. The secret password that would allow entrance into the secret place was Maranatha. When I was a young Christian, we would sing, The master went away from us 2,000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. And how our hearts do long for him. We miss the master so we must keep the faith and let the fire burn. There was a messianic expectation, but not by everyone. Not everyone was really looking for Jesus. I heard the story of a group of Christmas carolers in Brentwood many, many years ago who were going door to door spreading love and joy and the Christmas spirit. They rang one doorbell after another, sang their songs, but they came upon one particular door and a frenzied and frazzled housewife answers the door. She's getting ready for her Christmas festivities. She's trying to get the family ready for a celebration. And they said, hey, can we sing you some songs? And she says, I know it's Christmas, but I don't have time. You'll have to leave. And Bing Crosby and his family went to the next house. You don't expect Bing Crosby to show up on your door. And many Christians, even Christians... Sometimes find it difficult to believe that Jesus could show up. I want to bring your attention to something else. When Jesus came to this particular place, did he come as a child or did he come as an unborn child? There is Joseph and there is Mary and the Bible says that she is 
pregnant. Jesus was hidden in his mother's womb. And sometimes when Jesus shows up, it may not be in the way that you expect. You see, the truth is, when Jesus shows up, it may be in a hidden way. You'll remember that after Jesus died and rose from the dead, on that very first resurrection day, he takes a walk on what was called the road to Emmaus. Cleopas and his friend find themselves, Jesus joins them, and he speaks of a Bible prophecy, and he speaks of a Messiah who has to suffer and die, who will rise from the dead, And they didn't recognize him until he broke bread. And when he broke bread, they looked and there was the Jesus who rose from the dead and he disappeared. And what guys do you suppose Jesus will show up on your doorstep? How will he visit you? How will he visit you today? How will you recognize him when he shows up? How will you know that it's him knocking at your door? What form will it take? A gnawing hunger? A burning thirst? A bitter disappointment? An unexpected trial? Unexpected news? A deep need? What if he shows up as a child needing help? Remember in Matthew 18, 5, it says, Whoever receives one such little child in my name receives me. But make no mistake about it. He's sure to come. And if we're expecting him, and if we recognize him, if we expect him and we recognize him will we receive him perhaps the innkeeper didn't open the door to Jesus because he simply didn't want to that might come as a shock to you is it possible that we live in a world that would look for Jesus and even recognize Jesus, but when he shows up, they don't want him? And by that, I don't mean you don't like Jesus or you wouldn't let him be a guest in your house. Jesus is welcome on Christmas Eve and he's welcome on Christmas Day, but just make sure he leaves by January 1st. After all, you do have a life. You see, it's been my experience that people are more than happy to play host to Jesus, but they have no intention whatsoever of making him a permanent guest. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine someone shows up at your door with a brand new Porsche 911 two-door cabriolet. You love the car. It's black on black. And there's the sticker price. For the incredible price of $112,920, you can have this magical machine. Wait, wait. You can have it for the ridiculously low price of $89,999. And you actually like the car. But with tax and insurance and upkeep, you decide, wow. After buying the car and paying for the car and paying the maintenance on the car... My whole life would have to be surrounded with this car. It's not that you don't love the car. You just don't want everything that goes with the car. And if someone offered to sell it to you for $2,000, would you take it? Well, yeah. Oh, okay. You've decided that you can't afford the car. But now you decide that you can afford the car. And for some people, they don't think that they can afford Jesus of all of the demands that he'll make. There are certain guests who are just too expensive to entertain. And you begin to think it through. And you begin to realize that if you invite Jesus into your life and Jesus into your heart, he is going to be a 
high-maintenance kind of a guest. He's going to want you to love him every day and talk to him every day and be with him every day. That was the case with Herod, the king. Can you imagine Herod saying, I'm going to put the couple up at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. But then he began to realize that two kings, one kingdom, there's some, one of the kings is going to have to go. You know, Herod wasn't singing Christmas carols or lighting candles or giving gifts. When the people of Gadara learned that Jesus healed and delivered a man who was possessed with demons and that those demons invaded a herd of swine and they knew that there was no market for deviled ham. And so they asked Jesus to leave. Perhaps the saddest sentence in the whole Bible reads this way in John 1.11. He came into his own. And his own received him not. By the way, what guest will you entertain this Christmas that will make the presence of Jesus impossible? When Paul preached to the Roman procurator Felix, it was with such power and conviction that Felix was almost persuaded to accept Jesus as his Savior. And Paul told Felix, I wish to God that you would receive him or that you would be exactly like Paul apart from his chains. And Felix knew that his life was a mess, but he had another guest in his heart, and that guest was lust. And so he didn't have room for Jesus. You might think, well, that's not me. Well, what about the rich young ruler? He was clean and moral. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. But he goes away empty because he had a different guest. His guest was an attractive guest, even in the eyes of his family and friends, an acceptable, dependable, remarkable guest. Gold. There are many who find Jesus admirable, but there are also those who find him exacting. If I accept Christ, then something's going to have to be different. And you would be right. But the truth is, for the person who finds Jesus admirable, and the person who finds Jesus exacting, let me be the person who tells you that Jesus is also rewarding. Because there's no greater gift than to experience peace and joy and forgiveness and freedom and love and mercy and grace. I read a remarkable story about a Frenchman who owned a vast estate and he went to Paris and in Paris they have gardens that are unbelievable and this Frenchman is in the garden and he's hearing the birds singing and he's hearing the nightingales singing and he's thinking to himself, how come I don't hear these birds singing in my home? And he goes back to his estate and he finds the forests around his house filled with birds of prey. The The reason why there's no birds singing is the birds of prey, they come and they kill the songbirds. And so the gentleman ordered that the birds of prey be killed and be driven from his garden. And a week went by and a month went by, but finally after several months he heard the faint song of a nightingale singing. You see, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you don't have to drive the sin away. You don't have to make the birds of prey disappear. Jesus will come into your life and he will make the fear and he will make the grief and he will make the bitterness and he will make the anger go away. You see, there's all kinds of reasons why people won't have Jesus as a guest. So how can we make room for Jesus? Well, the truth is, all you need to do is to accept him. 
It's going to take an act of will. It's going to take an act of will for you to allow him to be that guest. For some, this is going to be a lonely Christmas. For some, it's going to be the loneliest Christmas of all. I couldn't think, couldn't help but think of the Davis family. This will be the first Christmas without Claire. And all the money that they saved up for her tuition, they're now going to have to dedicate to her funeral. I wonder if they already bought her presents. I wonder if they'll remain unopened. For some, they're going to feel the pinch of poverty. Others are going to grieve, and they're going to grieve with a profound intensity because they have so little to, to, to give, and some will feel forgotten, and some will feel desperately alone. But whatever your circumstances, remember, there's one who will remember you. However humble your home, or no matter how noble your estate, there's one guest who's willing to come and be with you. But you're going to have to permit him. Clovis Chappell writes, quote, We may all have Christ, and it's his presence that makes Christmas. I once saw a little girl trying to put a bit of a soiled notepaper into a mailbox. It was a letter to Santa Claus, and she told me. But tiptoe as she might, she wasn't able to reach high enough to mail her letter. I went to her assistance, but I'm afraid that even then it never arrived. But the smallest of us is able to reach high enough to lay hold of Jesus' hand For he comes down to walk with us and to come home with us and to live in our hearts. Receive him as your guest and nothing, nothing, nothing will prevent you from having a Merry Christmas. J.I. Packer writes, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus becomes poor and is born in a stable. So that 30 years later, he might die on a cross. We might add, and rise from the dead. And so, ask yourself this question. Who have you made a guest this Christmas who seems to discourage the presence of Jesus in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is filled with sorrow, with pain, with emptiness, with darkness. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to them and you would remind them that a real Jesus comes into a real world so that the whole world could be different. So that their world could be different. And for the broken heart, there's healing. And for the sinful heart, there's forgiveness. And for the lonely heart, there is a constant companion who will follow you throughout eternity. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray that we would find a place and that we would make room for Jesus where it matters most inside of our heart, inside of our home, inside of our world. Lord, we pray that we will recognize Jesus and that we will receive Jesus when he shows up. 
Let's stand.